All right, so hopefully you have an outline that says the Kingdom of God series, 5-9-2015, Chapter 4, Introduction to Word Pictures, Historical Narratives, Types, and Case Laws, um, or How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. These are four uh, types, I'm sorry, word pictures, historical narrative, types, and case laws were four ways of reading the Bible that is very common in the first seven or so centuries of the church and very common in the first 100 to 150 years of the Reformation and have been kind of uh, uh, taken away in Bible-believing Christianity after the Civil War. And so uh, understanding these concepts will actually help you get more out of your Bible reading. One thing I am happy for is uh, we have stressed Bible reading in this church, and uh, if the uh, people who are taking the systematic theology class, for instance, uh, stick it out this third time through, we'll have over 20 graduates from that class. Um, you know, lots of people in our church take Bible study seriously, and, I'm, and I hope that'll continue to increase over the years. So uh, this will help you get more out of reading your Bible. So what we've been doing in chapter 4 so far is just focusing on word pictures. We'll get into the other three historical narrative types and case laws here probably uh, in a few weeks. Um, I'm, we've been just doing the word pictures that you can take out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we've been on that for several weeks. Uh, we're not going to be able to take all the word pictures of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, some of them I'm going to skip because John has done so much with them. For instance, he's taken us through the Gospel of John, and John uh, uses light and darkness. But one thing I just want to reiterate is that uh, John has made a point of and remade the point. I just listened last night to his uh, sermon from a couple weeks ago, the one on, uh, uh, the one on following Christ and uh, Jesus restoring Peter and, and all that stuff. And if you remember, he used the whole thing of word pictures that Peter denied Christ three times at a charcoal fire, and then uh, Christ restored him uh, threefold at a charcoal fire. And uh, so um, the whole John, uh, all through his five books of the New Testament, uses the theme of light and darkness, which, of course, starts on the very first day of creation. And at the end of the first day of creation, God sets the biblical pattern, which is exactly the opposite of the way Christians think today about the Bible, when he says the darkness became light and there was evening or, or night and morning the first day. And all through the Bible, the theme is that darkness is being overpowered by light. John 1 uh, when he's talking about the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, we beheld his glory, glory is the only begotten, all that. He uh, talks about how the light, Christ, came into the darkness, and the darkness couldn't overpower it. The light overpowers the darkness. And uh, a little light dispels a lot of darkness. So one of the nice things is we have these exit signs uh, on the building, and at night, if... Uh, I'm down here to empty the trash or whatever, although most, mostly lots of other guys do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's all the light you need <laughs> to uh, make your way around the building and do whatever you need to do. <clears throat> a lot of light is, is uh, greater than a lot of darkness. A little light is greater than a lot of darkness, what I meant to say. So uh, 
In Roman numeral two, there's kind of a review of what we've covered. I didn't update. It should say chapter four F today. More last week, I got about halfway through Matthew on mountains. I'm not going to review uh, our introduction to Matthew, but I am going to review a little bit about mountains and just re- remember that mountains represent where the heavenly sanctuary of God meets, where God. Uh, takes the sanctuary, the perfect glory of his total presence in, in heaven and brings it to earth to tabernacle and, and, and dwell among men. Mountains represent that all through the Bible. So when things happen on mountains in the Bible, it's a clue that, that, that God is bringing the kingdom of God, that light is dispelling darkness, that, uh, that God is entering into earth. You know, the, right in the right dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, the primary teaching of what it means to be a Christ follower in the whole Bible. Right in that teaching, excuse me, um, Jesus says, is teaching us what to pray for and therefore what to work for as Christians. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And right from Eden, God intended, he built a, a, a garden on a mountain. We know Eden was on a mountain because four rivers went out from Eden and rivers don't flow uphill. So, um, and they went out to the ends of the earth. So it was a high mountain. And so it was actually the same mountain as later was called Mount Ararat that that Noah landed on. Now, um, Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac on a mountain. Uh, God makes covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, which is very important because uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the New Testament version of Mount Sinai. The glory of God is on the mountain, giving us the, the law of God uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, uh, after he talks about the Beatitudes, which is basically the what in, in the new birth and in sanctification and Christian maturity, you become the Beatitudes. That is, God came to make a new humanity. The first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded, Christ. And in Christ, we become a new humanity. And so we become the meek who will inherit the earth. We become poor in spirit uh, so we can enter and see the kingdom of heaven and so forth. So after that, uh, Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law, which is a the, you know very clear statement against the major theology in evangelicalism today called antinomianism. And uh, he didn't come to abolish it, but he came to establish it. He actually came to write the law on our hearts and our minds and empower us by his Holy Spirit to, to do it and to have the attitude. Not only do we not commit adultery, but by the grace of God in, the, in, in our new humanity, we don't even lust. Uh, not only do we not murder, but we're not even having trouble. And when you're walking in the spirit, you don't have anger management issues and so forth. So uh, he establishes on Mount Sinai, God gives the law, but Israel wrongly says, all that you said we will do. They, they begin their journey down performance-based uh, religion, which is an utter failure and it is still today. You cannot serve God out of your own strength and power and just trying harder. Um, but the grace of God has to remake you. Now, 
I last week I pointed out that Roman our number two down at the bottom of Roman three, the last point on the first page, we talked about how in Deuteronomy eleven, um, how um, the Lord caused half the tribes of Israel to be on Mount Gerizim, and how half the tribes of Israel to be on Mount Ebal. And uh, they spoke, and if you'll flip over, we'll read it, on Deuteronomy 27. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse the people. Now, really, the word curse is probably not the best English word to use in English translations, because we think of curses maybe as something evil or demonic. But what it is, is that if you remember when we taught on covenant, in uh, part three, major biblical themes, which we did 12 major biblical themes over, I guess, 12 weeks. Uh, um, all There's eight aspects of all covenants, one of which is, of course, there's vows and, and covenant ceremonies, and there's reenactment of covenant ceremonies. But there's covenant blessings and, or covenant disciplines. That is, there's sanctions. And so what's going on in Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, uh, if you read Deuteronomy 28, it's, it's followed by 11 verses of all the blessings God will bring upon Israel if they do the law and obey him, which they should have had the ability to, to humble themselves and say, instead of saying in Exodus 19, all that you've commanded we will do, they should have said, and, and I I love this part of working with you, uh, people who are just coming to Christ and doing Bible studies, because they'll say, man, I'm trying to, whatever they, I'm trying to get my anger management under control, or I'm trying to quit spending my money so foolishly, or is, I'm trying to to overcome my addiction to this or that. And and uh, and I uh, was uh, having a, such a Bible study with someone yesterday, and we turned to Mark, where uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, they say, well, if it's like this, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, it's impossible. I love to say the Christian life is not difficult. It's utterly impossible. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you don't have any hope uh, of being able to do it on, in and of yourself. You need to receive Christ and receive his resurrected grace and the power of his spirit. You need to receive he is the living word that we encounter when we read the written word, and we need his church that he's put uh, grace in through apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, helps, and administrations. He's put grace uh, all through the church. In all these ways, God comes to us by the word, the spirit, and the church to and give us grace, and by grace, we're in, empowered to do the will of God, to come back into harmony for how we were created, how we were always intended to be. We become a new creation. If anyone's in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're a new creation. So um, this the reason I point out this Mount Gerizim, Mount uh, Ebal thing is because we're going to see Jesus do the same thing on the Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, point eight today. Now, last week we got through the first four points, so I'm going to be very brief on them and just say, of course, uh, Matthew, I'm giving us 10 ways that Matthew uses mountains in his gospel. However, Matthew was Levi, therefore he was the fifth called of the 12 apostles. 
Therefore, he was with Christ pretty much from the beginning of his public ministry. And Matthew is really not giving us how Matthew's using mountains. He's given us how Jesus used mountains. And Jesus knew the word. He grew up in Galilee. One thing that's come to light in the last 30 or so years in scholarship is that the Jews of Judea range, the southern part of Israel, uh, had a tendency to be pharisaical and very legalistic and had lots of division of sex and so forth. Not so uh, among the, North, the Galileans. Notice that most of the apostles were actually from Galilee. And they grew up, <coughs> in, in, if you were a, a Galilean young man, and even most you know, young women, would memorize the first five books of the Bible by the time they were 12. Think we have a serious approach to scripture? Uh, think again. So, um, however, you couldn't get invited to follow and study under the better rabbis unless you'd memorize most of what should be called the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. So, um, really, when Jesus is calling the disciples, He's actually calling guys, interesting, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what's poor in spirit is, is when God gives you the grace through life circumstances or whatever reason, he opens your eyes to see you can't cut it. It's amazing how I will uh, often minister to addicts and, and alcoholics and people have the idea, oh, uh, they'll bottom out. Well, some of the most proud people I've ever met are some of the most messed up people, and pride and sin have a way of blinding you, and they're know-it-alls. But a person who's poor in spirit is someone who God has been drawing to the kingdom in such a way that you see your utter need for Christ. That It's as simple as that. And so Jesus, all the disciples were guys who were passed over by Gamaliel. You know how Paul was called by, was studied under Gamaliel, meaning Paul was an outstanding scholar by the time he was 12 years old. <laughs> so uh, the, the uh, four fishermen, not so much. Levi, he just said, forget it. He became a traitor to Israel and uh, collaborated with the Romans to collect taxes and shake down his own people. He was a despicable me or whatever. I haven't seen the movie, but whatever I did, I'm sure he's probably despicable. But uh I would guess since the movie says that. But uh, man, Levi was much more despicable than whatever movie character they created, I'm sure. Um, so Jesus' final temptation is on the mountain. That's important because the first Adam failed on the mountain. The second Adam succeeded the temptation on the mountain. And that's why we can draw Hebrews 4. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who's been tested in all things, same things Adam and Eve were tested in, same things every human is tested in, yet without sin. So we can draw near to the tools of grace, the word, the spirit, and the church. We can draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need because we have a sympathetic high priest who never sinned. That's important. Otherwise, what would he have to give us? So, um, then, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verse Matthew 5, 1 and 2, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. 
And after he sat down, he said to the multitudes, is that what it says? It says the multitudes came to him. So he saw, sees these mountains, and he says to his disciples, come on, let's get up here on this mountain. Okay, he's not talking to the multitudes. He's talking to the disciples about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's the quintessential primary teaching of the Bible on what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's two disciples and on a mountain. And if you study it out, if you go back in your Old Testament and you study Eden, Ararat, Nebo, Gerizim, Moriah, Sinai, which is also called Horeb, and Jerusalem, which is also called Zion, or surrounded by the mountains of Zion, you'll see that Jesus is doing the new mountain of all those mountains in the Sermon on the Mountain. So um, now we already talked about the new humanity, the new Jerusalem. Jesus says, you, not, not Israel anymore, no longer is it going to be Israel anymore because Matthew is God's final covenant lawsuit against Israel. Jesus is standing firmly in as a completion of the message of every prophet in announcing all the sanctions because it's come to the point where Israel is beyond repentance. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to, Matthew 16, he says, I'm going to build my ecclesia as, as, as opposed to Moses's ecclesia. And I'm, I'm going to uh, build this new humanity, and you're going to be a city set on a hill. A hill is a type of mountain, right? So, um, and so forth. We could go through all, all of this, kingdom prayer, true and false worship. Uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 34. If you ever struggle with anxiety, here's... Here's what I, I would encourage you to do. That's point, uh, um, where is it? Um, F, thank you. So uh, Roman number five, number two, F. Here, here's the thing that we have. Most I grew up in a performance-based Christianity with a very performance-based mom. And I like to say I grew up in a certain religious tradition, so I can feel guilty about anything. Uh, so... Um, if you grow up performance-based, you, you, you have to change how you relate to God because in, when you're performance-based, you, you try to deny what the reality before God, and you, oh, it's not, no, I don't, I don't really get drunk. I don't really have anger, man. I really don't, you know. And you, uh, instead of confessing, which is the first step toward grace, getting convicted truly of how God sees it, and confessing means homilageo is the Greek word to say the same thing God says, Instead of blame shifting, excuse making, rationalizing, you say, God, yeah, here I am. I'm a mess. Help me. Save me. And so um, anxiety in Matthew 6, 19 through 34, there's a little statement in, right in the middle of it. No one can serve two masters because to be anxious means to be divided among two uh, lords. Because ultimately, whatever you're worrying about, you're not trusting God about. And so instead of getting condemned about anxiety, if you have it or worry, get set free. For, just say, thank you, God, for this barometer or what, whatever tool you want to say, or this measuring rod of how, where I'm at with you. I'm worried and anxious. Therefore, I used, to, I used to struggle with sleeping at night. And I struggled with sleeping at night because I was anxious and worried. 
And, and actually, I most struggle with worry and anxiety. Uh, in my early pastor days, I would stay up all night fretting and worrying about every person in the church and how they're doing. And, and there's always three or four people who are really in trouble, and, and I couldn't sleep over it. But guess what? I'm, a, I'm an instrument of Christ, but I'm not Christ, so I, I just need to learn to roll it over to God. That's what it, when it says commit your works and so forth in Proverbs. You roll it over onto God and forget it. Have a good night's sleep. <laughs> Quit worrying. Be at peace. And, uh, you, you know, you can't turn one hair of your head white or black. Uh, I wish I could just even grow some hairs on my head, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever they have that you can put on your head, I haven't never tried it, but it seems too expensive. But, uh, you know, I can't, I can't put the hairs on my head back. Maybe Jesus should have changed it from white or black to, uh, you can't even grow hair. But, uh, so, you know, worry is God's love gift to you to say, I love you, and I want you to bring it under me. I want you to relate to me in this out of trust. And when you when you get into the sanctuary of God, remember that there's a psalm that I love that says, I was envious of the wicked when I saw their prosperity and that they have no pains in their death and so forth. And, da, 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 da. and he lists all these reasons why the wicked seem to be at ease. And then he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, in other words, when I had eternal perspective that only comes from the active presence of the Spirit of God flowing in your life, then I saw their end. And then I realized they're the ones that need to be worrying, <laughs> not me. Uh, because in the Lord, uh, when we climb the mountain of the Lord and we're in, you know, Ephesians 2, we're seated in, in, at the Father's right hands in heavenly places, we can be like Alfred E. Newman. What? Me? Worry? So then thirdly, we talked about how Matthew uh, takes us up and down mountains. This is a very, very important concept because um, we as Christians, we love mountaintop experiences with God. And you need to have them daily. So when you're reading the Word, and, and it's more than just getting your five chapters or two chapters or whatever you, for the day, but when you're having an encounter with God, and you're turning it all over to Him, and you're walking out of His righteousness, not your own, and when you're uh, you know, filled with, with the Spirit of God, you bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. I can't even produce raisins of you know, little shriveled up fruit in and of myself. You all know me long enough to know that if, when I'm in the flesh, the fruit isn't, it's not that good. It's not even raisins. But uh, um, so, but Jesus is constantly going down the mountain. Uh, I wish I could get more into what we got. You can go back and listen to the podcast. You know, Sinai was a three-tiered mountain. All mountains in the Bible were three tiers. And therefore, the tabernacle became a three-tiered structure that was a portable mountain of God, a portable way to meet the Lord. By the way, the Bible, for every good thing God has, there's counterfeits. So man has false mountains like the pyramids and the ziggurat uh, and, uh, you know, the... the uh, you know, that they were building in Babel and so forth. There's always man's attempts to build his mountains. Performance-based approaches to God have been with man since the fall of man. So uh, Jesus comes down from the 
mountain and large crowds follow him and so forth. Um, and he, as he sent the mountains away, he, the crowds away, he went up to the mountains. But then he, when he came down from the mountain, he named the, the 12 apostles, right? Now, this is important because in Luke, Luke has the, a, a very famous sermon called the Sermon on the Plain. And if you study, uh, yes, those of you who took the Bible, um, what, what's the name of our Bible class at Sinclair? Uh, search the scriptures at Sinclair, or at Great State. Geez, got to get on the right campus. Our search the scriptures class on Thursday nights at Wright State. Uh, you'll remember we went through each of the writers of the New Testament and, and who they were and why God worked through them and so forth. And Luke is the only Gentile uh, writer of the New Testament. And Luke calls Jesus the Son of Man 38 times. And Luke's uh, emphasis, as it was in his writing the book of Acts, is that the, Matthew said the kingdom will be taken away from you in terms of Israel. And for 40 years after Pentecost, gradually those that remnant, because there's always a remnant of Jews who were going to follow Christ, was called and established and God began to work in Samaria, Acts chapter 8 through Philip, and then in Acts 10 through Peter and Cornelius, and then others began to share in the, the church in Antioch. By Acts 13, the church in Antioch becomes the model church of the New Testament, a Gentile church. And God, before he destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, and fini basically finishes his work with Israel, he establishes the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God, the mountain of God, called the church. Now, what Luke is emphasizing, many of the same things that are said in the Sermon on the Mount are said on the Sermon on the Plain, and these are faithful historical narratives, and so therefore Jesus uh, as he did, if, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus often taught the same things more than once. I like to know that because uh, you hear the same things from me a lot. Um, and a lot of the same content that's in the Sermon on the Mount is in the Sermon on the Plain because uh, Luke is emphasizing uh, that Jesus made it clear that he was taking the kingdom away from Israel and giving it to a nation that is the church, producing the fruit thereof, and it's for all the nations. The, what's amazing about Acts chapter 10, when Peter has to see the vision and God sends an angel to Cornelius and they go get Peter in a nearby city, Joppa, and, and he, they find it exactly as the angel told them they would, and Peter is amazed and so forth, is Peter was eight years after he was restored in John's message there in John 21, after he was restored, uh, Peter is about eight years at this time, the, the lead apostle of the whole church of Jerusalem, and he still doesn't get it in his theology that a major theme of the whole Old Testament is that the kingdom would come to the coastlands. Whenever you see the coastlands, whenever you see the sea, whenever you see the ships of the sea, all of that is symbolic of the, all the nations. The reason Luke emphasizes this historically happened, but Matthew does, is writing to the Jews to, tell, to show them that they killed their Messiah and that they, were, they you know, were under final and ultimate sanctions and they need to flee to Christ for refuge. The reason 
uh, if you notice in Matthew 10, it records the sending out of the 12. Luke 9 records the same. But Luke 10 records the sending out of the 70 others. And 70 all through the Old Testament is a symbolic number for all the nations. It was thought of in the ancient world that there are 70 nations in the earth. And so whenever you see that he's, when it, what he's saying when he sent out these 70 others, he's saying this is for the whole world. So um, then, of course, Peter's confession, I think we kind of got into this. Uh, and then hopefully we'll have ooh, enough time to... Uh, get the others. I'll just say Peter's confession is at Caesar Philippi. He stands outside the city, but Caesar Philippi was also known as Peneus. It was the city of the Herods. It was on a mountain, and um, it was where uh, the Romans worshipped the cult of the emperor. And so Jesus isn't doing this by accident, because that's not even in his normal ministry territory. He's going up to Caesarea Philippi, to make a point, when, P- when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, it will be on that revelation that his church will be built, on that mountain, on that understanding of who that Christ is the King of the kings, the Lord of those who would be lords, and he's the King of Herod, and he's the King of Pilate, and he's the King of Caesar. He's not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of those who would be king and the Lord of those who would be lords. Now, at the Mount of Transfiguration, number five, I wish we could get into more of that, but uh, suffice it to say there's Moses, Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, which is how the Jews considered the whole Hebrew scriptures. So he's representing the Hebrew scriptures, and they're representing all that God has done up till now in the earth. Okay, and they're filled with glory. And Peter makes a great mistake. We love Peter uh, because he jumped to conclusions quite often as we do and without enough study. And so Peter says, hey, Lord, it's good for us to be on the mountain. This is awesome. Glory of God, you know, prophets shining in whiter garments than anyone could. Let, I'm going to build three tabernacles and we'll just we'll just hang out here, <laughs> you know. We'll just enjoy the glory of God, and wow, God even spoke. This is my son. Listen to him, which is, which is the fulfillment of what Moses had prophesied. God will raise up a prophet to me, and you will listen to him. And whoever does not listen to him will be cut off from his people, which God was about to do over the next 40 years. Whoever did not follow Christ was utterly cut off in the destruction of Jerusalem. Right? So... Um, all that is being fulfilled in their midst. And Peter is saying like, wow, let's just camp here. Let's organize a camping trip. Uh, And Jesus insists not only on going down the mountain, but on the way down, he starts telling them for the second time about his upcoming crucifixion. The first time, remember, Peter got so upset. He's like, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus gave him a wonderful, loving Modern, you know, like, well, like in modern times, we'd go, well, Peter, maybe you're, you're that's a good try. And I, I know you have good motives and you're a good person. And, um, you know, you probably just need a little adjusting on your thinking. 
you know, Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. What the heck's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, he forgot to read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But uh, and, and all the modern theories of how to praise, praise, praise all your kids so they can become nar- self-infatuated narcissists. But uh, uh, so he, uh, just some studies I've been reading on narcissism lately in the narcissism epidemic. Um, so... Um, he, he starts telling them about this crucifixion thing again. And on the mountain, on the way down the mountain, which is the second tier of the mountain, as, as we saw at Sinai and so forth. So then they get to the foot of the mountain, and the same disciples who'd been sent out in Matthew 10 and had cast demons out of lots and lots of people can't cast the demon out of one guy's son. They're failing their test without Jesus there. And so Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. Again, not the, as nice as we would now. But, uh, but then, he, uh, uh, then he does it, right? And he's saying, we have to come off the mountain, go down to the valley, and get involved in fallen humanity. I hope that you, as you grow in Christ, at the end of the, every night and the end of every day, uh, that you'll just be utterly exhausted with how many troubled, messed up uh, people that you've been trying to help. That's what it means to be a disciple. Come off. you got to get up on the mountain because you got nothing to give otherwise. Woe is you if, you, you know, uh, there's a, Famous story with Charles Spurgeon, or that uh, this drunk guy came up and he goes, "Hey man, I've gone to your meetings. I must be like, I think I'm one of your converts." And Spurgeon says, "Well, you must be one of mine because you're certainly not one of the Lord's." <laughs> and uh, uh, so, um, so. Uh, moving on to number six, moving mountains, Jesus twice repeats uh, that um, that he's not going to just necessarily give you an easy, easy path. You're going to have obstacles, and those obstacles are going to be mountain-sized. And you can keep going around the mountain, avoiding the trials and temptation, or whatever you want to do, or you can, or you can move them. So that's, I, if I had more time, I would preach that one, but I don't want to cut myself off from the last couple. So moving on to the triumphal en- entry um, and Jesus' final covenant lawsuit in Matthew 21, 22, and 23, the eight woes, and I'm taking the kingdom away from you and giving to a nation, producing the fruit of it, and all that. Um, the great confrontation with the religious Israel, leaders of Israel saying, this is it. Deuteronomy 28's happening. You're, I'm done with you. And as we said last week, at the end of chapter 23, verse 37, after all these, all these listings of the sanctions that he's going to bring on Israel and the woes and everything else, Jesus weeps over the city, Jerusalem. Verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks, but you would not have it. And then he says, 
maybe the saddest words in the whole scripture, he says, behold, your house is left to you, Ichabod, desolate. And, and, and actually, the, the Greek word in the Septuagint is the word for Ichabod, meaning there will be no more glory, there will be no more presence, I'm not going to dwell in this temple anymore. And when a few chapters earlier, at the beginning of his sanctions and, and his um, covenant, uh, you know, listing of sanctions against the leaders of Israel, he had called it my house and said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're using the court of the Gentiles, which is supposed to be for bringing the Gentiles in. You're using it to, to rip people off and to keep the Gentiles from the kingdom of God. And it's my house and it's supposed to be a house of prayer. No longer is he calling it my house. It's a very, very uh, definite change of terminology because he says, your house here, you have it. I disown it. I'm disowning the nation. I'm disowning their, your place of worship. I'm not going to fulfill what Solomon had prayed about if Israel sins and they turn to this house and that, that he'll restore his glory and he'll restore it. I'm not doing it anymore. It's over. I'm calling a remnant out, and they're going to spread the gospel to the nations, and, the, and I'm building a new humanity throughout through all the nations of the earth, and they will be my temple, and they will be my city. Now, that, mount, that journey called, that we celebrate on Palm Sunday, he starts on the Mount of Olives and descends and travels into Jerusalem, which is a, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, Psalm 125, 2. So he, it's a journey from mountain to mountain, and uh, he disowns it. Now, it's immediately when he gets done saying, behold, your house is left to you desolate, the disciples say, that's why they, some, you gotta, you got to get in the habit of just take the chapters out, Always read a little bit into the next chapter, and, re and when you start a chapter, go back at least one paragraph or so from the previous chapter, because the chapters were put in in the 8th century. I like having the chapters so we can find our, where we're going, but they can mislead you because they're right in the middle of uh, Matthew 21 to, to 25 have to be read as one chapter. And so the disciples say, you know, after he says, your house is left to you template, or desolate, he, the disciples, you know, they, they just don't get it all the way up to Acts 1, 6, and 7. They don't get it till Pentecost, really. The disciples go, look, Jesus, what wonderful buildings. <laughs> and Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another. The, this this uh, temple will be, the, the city will be surrounded by armies and, and the torn down and not one stone will be left on another. The abomination of des desolation, which is a concept that goes back to Daniel, that is uh, a pagan empire, emperor will purposely stand in the holy of holies declaring himself to be God, which Titus did. And, uh, um, and he says this uh, generation will not pass away until all this takes place. Now, this is very important that you see Jesus intentionally get the, gives the Mount Olivet Discourse, which the three synoptic gospels repeat. Matthew goes into more detail than Mark and Luke. They repeat. Uh, if you want a good study of it, there's a book by R.C. Sproul that we have on our intermediate list called The Last Days According to Jesus. And um, he... Mount 
uh, he's basically doing the Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim thing, because what he's doing is he's standing on Mount Olivet, which is a taller mountain. He's fulfilling Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 that says it'll come about in the last days. He's fulfilling it symbolically, which continues to be filled in actuality uh, to this day. He says the mountains, uh, Mount Olivet, uh, Isaiah 2 says it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it'll be raised above the hills, and it will be the tallest of the mountains. So he's purposely choosing a taller mountain to look down uh, to Mount Moriah and Mount Zion, Surrounding Jerusalem, the Temple Mount was on Moriah. That's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and David made his sacrifice on the threshing floor of Onan or whoever it was. And um, and he basically begins to list all the sanctions against Israel. And he said, makes it very clear, this generation, people who have the modern idea of futurism and so forth, try to... Uh, uh, try to say, well, maybe it means race, this, this race of people. No, it doesn't. It means this generation, which a biblical generation is 40 years, will not pass away until all that I'm talking about is fulfilled. There's still an arch in Rome that if you ever get to travel and get to go to Rome, you will see the Arch of Titus, and it commemorates Titus's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and his tearing down of the temple so that not one stone was not was left on another and his standing in the holy of holies declaring himself to be God Now if you want a good book on that this the Mount Olivet discourse get an eschatology of victory by J Marcellus Kick um, I'm already past my time, so let's try to get 9 and 10 in as best we can. Uh, the crucifixion takes place on Golgotha, meaning place of the skull, hill. And a hill is a small mountain. Uh, that's important. Because the same, because Abraham in foreshadowing, had been told to sacrifice Isaac. God didn't allow him to do that. And, but Abraham prophesied, being a prophet of God, said God will provide himself the lamb. It doesn't mean God himself will provide a lamb. It means that God himself will be the lamb. And so on Golgotha Mountain, Abraham's prophecy is fulfilled. The lamb of God dies for the sins of the world. And even from the, that very experience, there's a Roman centurion who says this was truly the Son of God. And God begins to extend the kingdom out to what he always intended his people to do, to be the mediators of the presence of God to the nations around him. And God is doing it already. I wish I could develop that one more, but I want to give a couple minutes to the Great Commission, and I'm already past my time. Jesus, um, if you remember, John went over this in John uh, in his Easter sermons, and therefore, but you know about how Jesus said to the women, "Go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee." 
right? But Matthew brings out, and I think it's verse 16, yeah, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had designated. And on this mountain, Jesus says, uh, I can't do justice to John's sermon. Please get that one. It was one, it maybe his best, one of his best. It's really good. All authority in heaven and earth. We, you have to have that in your spirit. You have to be empowered. The word authority means exousia, which means power and authority. You know, the police guy has his, he has his authority with his badge and his thing, but he also has his gun, that's his power. And he has uh, all the other cops he can call. He's got plenty of power to back up his being a traffic cop or whatever. And uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And when you encounter me on the mountain and you've got that in you, when, it's, when you've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, when it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, and you live this life by trusting in and leaning on and drawing your life from the Son of God who loved you and delivered himself up for you, when you do that, you can go into the whole world and disciple everyone in everything. He says, teach them everything I commanded, which is the whole Bible, the whole way of living, how to handle your money, how to have the right attitude, how to be a good husband, how to be a good father, how to be a good church member, how to love God, how to worship. Go and make disciples of all nations. Get down off this mountain and go do it throughout the whole world. And I am going to be with you always, even into the end of the age. A lot of people don't like flying because they misinterpret the verse and they, they, Jesus says, lo, I will be with you all into the end of the age. No, no, <laughs> no just kidding. Uh, so um, hopefully uh, we can, that'll be a good help for us. Look at mountains in the rest of the Bible. I only went through, um, in these last three weeks, I went through mountains in the first five books of the Bible and mountains in Matthew. Uh, next week, I think I'm going to do trees, and that's probably all I'm going to do with biblical imagery. John does a lot with it. We do a lot with it all the time here, but it, uh, it can help you get much more out of your Bible. Amen.